The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Before we get started, we want to tell you a bit about the sponsor of this week's History Extra podcast, Warner Hotels. If you're looking to escape to a picturesque corner of the UK for a few days, Warner Hotels has just the thing for you. Each hotel offers everything you could possibly need for the perfect weekend away. From unrivaled leisure facilities and inspiring live entertainment, to delicious dining experiences and plenty of history for you to uncover. If this sounds like your kind of getaway, Warner Hotels is now offering a series of exciting weekend packages in 2024. Each three-night stay is at one of three historic hotels, with dinner, bed and breakfast included, plus a whole itinerary of fascinating talks and Q&As with a selection of BBC history experts, such as Tracy Borman, Susanna Lipscomb and James Holland. So what are you waiting for? Book your break now at warnerhotels.co.uk. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. regularly written about he's in the media all the time you still do him if you read A-level geography um, he's everywhere but very few people actually ever read Malthus himself that was Robert Mayhew talking about the political economist Thomas Malthus and it was a time of great change and people weren't sure what was happening and I think that was one of the features that he latched onto in writing his sensation novels that people uh, were sort of slightly on edge and that was Andrew Lysett describing how Victorian novelist Wilkie Collins reflected the period in which he lived. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. It's available in all good news agents or you can take out a subscription from wherever you are. Visit historyextra.com forward slash subscribe for the latest subscription offers. And we have many digital editions available for the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play and Zinio. If you want details of any of them, visit historyextra.com forward slash digital. Thomas Robert Malthus's essay on the principle of population caused quite a stir upon its publication in 1798, with critics going on to label its author among other things, a reptile, an ass and a booby. But Malthus's work, with its argument about human population and the lack of resources, continues to be influential. Robert Mayhew, who has written a new account of Malthus, met up with our books editor, Matt Elton, to discuss the reality of the man and his ideas. So what first appealed to you about writing about the subject? I think what first appealed is I think that he's regularly written about... He's in the media all the time. You still do him if you read A-level geography. Um, he's everywhere, but very few people actually ever read Malthus himself. People talk about Malthus, they don't read him. And it seemed to me important to try and explain what he actually said, because it's not what people think. OK, and obviously we'll touch on what he said in a bit. Yeah. Um, for people who might not know, could you explain the background of his life, I suppose? OK, so Malthus is... Uh, alive in the late 18th and early 19th century. He's really easy to remember because he lives 34 years either side of 1800. So it's nice and easy. And he's a scholar and a thinker. He's a pioneer of modern demography. And therefore, in a broader sense, he's one of the, the founding fathers of modern social science, I guess. And so that's where his contribution lies. And so what were the main kind of tenets of his, of his argument, I suppose? OK, so he writes a book called An Essay on the Principle of Population in 1798. That's the book he's remembered for. And 
The main argument he wants to make is that population always tends to outstrip the resources it needs to survive. So we have a problem. We're always going to have more mouths to feed than we have resources to feed them. The reason this matters, because we think that's fairly straightforward now, the reason this matters is when he wrote, a lot of people thought the bigger the size of your population, particularly governors, rulers, kings, the bigger the size of your population, the better, the stronger you were. He's arguing, no, it can actually destroy your society rather than empowering it. So that's why this matters. Um, and so he has quite a negative view in that sense or... Not negative. That's that's the normal view of Malthus. He's gloom and doom and negative. No, what he's saying is that policymakers, rulers, need to be aware of this potential problem and need to think, how do we respond to it? Where you have resources, he thinks it's good if population grows. So that's the sense in which he thinks a large population is good, but only if you have the resources to sustain it. To merely and randomly want to encourage procreation, as Denmark does now, to merely and randomly do that is, is a problem unless you have the resources to sustain it. OK, so what did he suggest to do to help solve this problem? So he basically says there's two ways in which population can be kept in balance with resources, the bad and the good. The bad one is the one he's remembered for, which is that he says nature can do the adjustment for you. Plague, famine, war will cut your population back to fit the cloth that your resources provide. But that's not exactly an ideal way to adjust your population. So he basically argues the good way to adjust your population to resources is something he calls the preventive check. So late marriage, limiting the number of children you have in marriage. Also, and this is the one he's controversial for, he thinks that the state should not subsidise children where families cannot actually support them. So he's he's very hostile about what he calls poor relief, which is, of course, the late 18th century equivalent of benefits, I suppose, in the present day. So he, he thinks that the state system is, is allowing people to have children they can't support, and he's very critical of that. OK. Do we get a sense of how he views the poor as, as, as a people? It's mixed. So... If you look at how Malthus is received, how people respond to his writings, he's seen as the great enemy of the poor, the man who'd happily have them starve. There's something in Dickens's Ebenezer Scrooge that's about Malthus. Uh, if there's a surplus population, let them die or go to the workhouse and do something useful. Now, there's an element that it's true. Malthus is, is actually quite critical of the poor in the sense that they need to plan their family size and make sure they can sustain it. But there's another way in which what he's saying is, actually, we should be trying to make sure everybody has a quality of life, everybody can be sustained. And the interesting thing is, when the crunch comes in England, in 1800, there's a very large uh, problem feeding the population. He writes a pamphlet, and at the end of it, he says that for all the problems of poor relief, he'd rather it were in place and that people were saved by it than that they died. So ultimately... There is a humanitarian side to him in his attitude to the poor, although it's not the one people tend to remember. Mm. I mean, you've touched on that and that his views tend to get kind of locked into a certain position on things. Did he, in fact, change his views throughout his life? Yes. So he's known for what he wrote in 1798. And he's normally uh, attacked for that one book. But he carried on writing for another 36 years until his death. And his views do change and they do soften. I think there's two main things here. One, he becomes much more interested in the rational ways in which we can control population. So how we control our family size as individuals, how the state incentivizes people to have the right family size. And he increasingly over his life thinks that can be effective, i.e. we can plan our way out of problems. We don't need famine, war, pestilence, etc. So that's one thing. And the second way in which he changes, I think, is that he becomes much more interested in, instead of asserting things, finding evidence. So he lives in the era of the birth of the census, our modern way of understanding populations. The first British census is 1801. So three years after his essay, and his essay is influential in why it happens at all. And for the remainder of his life, he's very interested in what do censuses around Europe tell us about how population is working. And because he becomes much more interested in data, he becomes much more cautious in what he says. Rather than asserting things, which is what, as a young man, he does in 1798, he becomes cautious, he becomes nuanced, and he starts to think that the dynamics between population and resources are much more complicated. OK. And in terms of his views, I suppose, what factors can we see as shaping them? Do you mean what 
drove him to write? Or? I, yeah, I, I suppose what external factors that were kind of inherent in the period in which he okay. was alive shaped his, shaped his thought? I, I think the single biggest one is the French Revolution. So we think of the French Revolution in 1789, of course, but in Britain the French Revolution becomes a hot issue again in 1798 because people are fearful that the revolution is going to come over the Channel and sweep through England. That's where Malthus writes, and that is clearly why he writes. The subtitle of the book makes it quite clear that he is attempting to attack radical utopian arguments that we need an equivalent of the French Revolution. That's the single key reason he writes. And he wants to say that because population always outstrips resources, you cannot have a utopian ideal society. There will always be hardship. There will always be a tendency for us to have problems uh, controlling and feeding our population. So I think the French Revolution is the single key reason he writes. But as I say, in England, that means he writes in 1798, not 1789. Yes, I understand. Um, you've mentioned Dickens. Um, he had a lot of criticism from Dickens and poets as well, uh, criticised yeah. him. What sort of things did they say about his, his work? Well, there's a couple of main strands, and one which is very strongly in Dickens and the Romantic poets is that Malthus, who is a clergyman, he, he, that's his profession, that Malthus is unchristian. Because, of course, the Christian doctrine is one where charity is at the core. And, of course, Malthus is saying that charity is a problem because it allows us to sustain people who otherwise can't support themselves. So Mal Malthus is seen as anti-Christian. That's one of the, the strongest reasons why Dickens... The Romantics, a whole series of people, right down to the present day, actually, criticise Malthus. Um, I think the other main thing that the Romantics want to say, of course, is that Malthus's image of the natural world is, it's a bit like, we might get to that, it's a bit like Charles Darwin's. It's a place of vicious competition, a struggle to survive. And, of course, the Romantic doctrine of nature, Wordsworth, Coleridge, they're writing at exactly the same time as Malthus. The Romantic doctrine of nature is that nature is an intimation of God leads us somewhere higher. And therefore, there's this clash between different visions of what it is to be a human being in the natural world. And I think that's why the poets in particular are so, so negative about Malthus. Some of the things they write are really harsh when you look at it. It's just look, yes, incredible. I mean, Southey, who was the poet laureate later, says that Malthus's book is a diarrhoea of the intellect, which is a lovely <laughs> phrase. Um, but yes, and that's only one amongst many uh, of those sorts of uh, quite fruity comments. Mm. Some of them were hugely personal, the attacks on him. What do you think led to that level of... Um, kind of anger, I suppose, almost. I think the, the fundamental thing is, again, this sense that he is violating basic Christian tenets. Of course, the Age of Enlightenment that Malthus comes at the end at is often seen as secularising, but I think in Britain, Enlightenment is still a strongly clerical and Christian phenomenon. And I think that Malthus, it's this sense that he's offending our basic sensibilities as a Christian nation that most upsets them and leads to that vitriol. The strange thing is that whenever any of them meet Malthus, personally, they like him. Because for all that he's known as this ogre in print, personally, he was a nice family man, well known for his sense of humour. He then taught at a college and the students loved him. So whenever anyone met him, that sense of antagonism tended to dissolve. But when you just read him, there was this huge sense that he was an ogre. What were his views on, on the natural order of things then, I suppose? It's, it's definite that Malthus's view of the natural order is it's God-made, it's a Christian view. Um, it's also his argument in the essay that the fact that we have to struggle is good. The fact that we need to work hard to survive is good because that leads us to innovation and technical and social advance. This is not what people think Malthus says, mm. but that's because they don't tend to read the last two chapters of the book. They don't get that far. That's where he says this. So nature is a place where we struggle to survive, but that is a divinely built injunction. That's a divinely built system. And the reason we struggle is that that allows us to innovate and to stretch our human capacities of reason, innovation, and in modern terms, entrepreneurship. So that's his vision, and it's very different from the romantic one. So it's actually quite a positive vision in that sense, not the negative vision that some people have him at all. He's saying that humans can can improve to meet these challenges. Yes. So, so I mean, this is why I think Malthus is misunderstood. If you, if you do A-level geography, if I'm allowed to talk about that, you're told <laughs> that Malthus is negative about our ability to survive and that modern critics are positive. It's a false dichotomy because Malthus by the end of the book is, is, is doing something that's 
profoundly an enlightenment understanding that through reason we will advance. Because nature forces us to reason, we have societal advance. So Malthus's big picture argument is that because nature is a tough place to survive, that's actually the main engine of social advance and individual advance. And therefore, it's a profoundly enlightened story of progress. But what it isn't for him is a utopian story with the French Revolution, which for him is not grounded in the facts about how nature works. That's something that we haven't touched on, actually, is the idea of there being these utopian writers. Yeah. Who were these people and what were the things that they said? Okay, so Malthus's essay, as we remember it, nice short title, has this long, very boring 18th century subtitle. And what it tells you is he's attacking two people called Mr. Godwin and Monsieur Condorcet. William Godwin is the leading English radical thinker of the early 1790s. Um, he marries Mary Wollstonecraft, the great uh, early feminist theorist. Uh, their daughter is Mary Shelley, author of Frankenstein. That's the person that um, Malthus is attacking. And then there's Condorcet, who is a French philosopher, who is in the end, um, he dies in 1794. Best check, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> he dies in, in 1794, I think it is. And that's because um, he's essentially hounded in the terror. Um, but he'd initially been a huge supporter of, of the revolutionary government. Both of them are social scientists and philosophers, and both of them argue the thing they share is that we're moving towards a perfect society. Condorcet in particular says there are 10 stages in human history and that the French Revolution is the threshold between the ninth stage and the 10th when we will achieve utopian perfection. Godwin likewise argues that the empire of reason will be such that soon we, for example, won't want to procreate and we will probably live to be immortal because our lifespan is expanding and he thinks that can continue indefinitely. And it's against this that Malthus pitches his argument, no, we'll probably still want to procreate, which history's proved him right on that one, I think, um, and that, no, we won't have an indefinite lifespan. Yes, medicine can improve our lifespan, but it will not become infinite nor even indefinite. So he thinks that these theorists, William Godwin and the Marquis de Condorcet, are essentially engaged in a fantasy about reason and what it can do. And instead, what we should do is ground what we think about nature, population, in the evidence, what we can actually demonstrate. In terms of the people that um, were influenced by this work, uh, are there any particular figures or schools of thought that you think are particularly important? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the obvious place to stop here is, is Charles Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace, I think. Um, Malthus has many impacts in the history of ideas and of course that's what the second half of my book is trying to chronicle that's the legacies of the subtitle but I think the single most important one is his impact on Darwin and Wallace it's well known of course that both of them essentially came up with the idea of evolution at the same time in 1858 to 9 and Wallace in particular actually had a lovely phrase 50 years later in 1909 he said that Malthus was the match was equivalent to the match which, when struck, lit the flame of their idea. And so both of them argued that Malthus was key to understanding evolution. And the reason is that Malthus gave them the idea that nature is this constant struggle for resources, a constant struggle to survive. And, of course, what they do is take an argument Malthus has for the human world, for human societies, and they translate it and say this explains natural societies and the competition between uh, species for scarce resources. So it's basically taking Malthus and applying it to the natural world is their insight. And I think that's the single most important mm. moment in the reception of Malthus's ideas in terms of making the world and the mental world that we live in today. Mm. There's some ways in which his ideas have been used fairly problematically. Um, for instance, in the States, there's some examples and elsewhere, I suppose, in the world. What um, do you think has led to this misunderstanding of his views um, for negative reasons, I suppose, if you like. So you're thinking about eugenics and trying to forcibly control population. Um, well, of course, it, it's a fairly simple step from saying it's we, we can tend to have too many people on the planet to saying, ah, in our modern world, technologically, we can control it. So if people are of lower mental capacity, however that's determined, or if we deem them to be alien and irregular, which is what Hitler was good at, we will uh, lead to forcible sterilization. In the United States, it's estimated about 75,000 people were forcibly sterilized, and this policy was only stopped in the early 1970s. So surprisingly recently, in fact. Um, why is it that Malthus is deemed part of that? Because he said the population size is a problem. But let's be clear, Malthus himself was very uh, straightforward in saying that 
it should be an individual's decision. It should be your individual reason that leads you to control your family size. It should not be state compulsion. As I've already said, of course, about the poor law, Malthus is very critical of the state intervening too much in individual lives. And because he's a thinker from the Enlightenment, he thinks that our own reason should lead us to this conclusion, not state compulsion. Are there any other ways in which you feel sad that his views have become distorted? I think the main one for me is this idea that Malthus is doom and gloom and pessimism. In fact, Malthus is quite the reverse. He's saying that through struggle, we lead to something that's quite optimistic, which is the flourishing of reason and the expansion of our technological capacities as human beings. So it seems to me that that the really sad thing is that Malthus's story has been reversed by people who only read well, say half of it, who don't read the conclusions. And that means that we profoundly misread what he was trying to tell us. But that's been the case from the beginning. From day one after his book was published in 1798, we've had these misunderstandings. That's one of the main reasons I wanted to Mm. write about him. Why, I mean, what kind of things do you think we can do to help reverse this misunderstanding, apart from your book, of course? (laughs) I think the main thing is actually read him. There's nothing a historian would ask you to do more than go (laughs) back to primary sources. Malthus's essay in its first version is not very long. 150 pages in a modern edition, 55,000 words. Just get to the end of it and you'll find that Malthus is not the person you may have been told about at school or is not the person you think of if you use the phrase Malthusian. Mm. He's much more complicated, varied and interesting than that. You mentioned uh, teaching there. Is, Is there a change in the approach that we use in schools to this subject that would help, do you think? I would love it if people stopped teaching a very simple story, uh, which is Malthus versus a Danish economist called Esther Bosrup, who wrote in the 1960s. She wrote some very influential and important material about developing world economies and demographies. And what she tried to argue, based in particular on her experience in the Indian subcontinent, was that actually population expansion leads to technological advance i.e. it's a positive stimulus. But as I say, that's exactly what Malthus wrote as well. Mm. And so I'd love it if we stopped pigeonholing one as doom and gloom and one as positive. And we in fact saw there's a more complicated dialogue across the generations about this interaction of population resources and social advance. So it's not simply one versus the other. Exactly. It's not black or white. Um, In in that sense, um, people that criticise him for in some way his theories not coming true... Um, what would you say to those people about the difference between what he predicted would happen and what actually did happen? He doesn't tell you... When people say that Malthus got it wrong, because we live in a world of 7 billion people, etc., Malthus didn't say that we were about to fall off a cliff and have some vast demographic Armageddon. He never said that. He indeed says in his later writings that he can't imagine us ever reaching that cliff. He thinks we'll always be innovating to new solutions and therefore that the total population the Earth can support will expand over time. So he understood that. So I think to the question, was Malthus wrong? The answer is no, he was exactly right, in fact. In his later mature writings, he precisely understood that technological advance meant that the number of people the Earth can sustain is not a fixed number that we can set in stone. It will be a a number that varies over time. And he was, I think, even willing to understand that the total number we could support would stagger him. So in the 1760s and 70s, people were already thinking the Earth could sustain a billion, which is actually about the number of people that probably were on the planet at the time Malthus wrote. Um, And they're also writing that technology will allow us to do a lot more. So I don't think Malthus would be surprised. And I'm quite clear that a world of 7 billion people doesn't prove he was wrong. How can we see his influence continue in today's society? I think that's one of the things that most surprised me writing this book is that as a historian, I I get very nervous if I have to write about anything too recent. But the last chapter on the book actually tries to come down to today. And one of the things that most surprised me is how much people are still talking about Malthus in the present day. You've got public commentators, Neil Ferguson, John Gray. You've got people like John Beddington, who was chief scientist in the UK. They're all still talking Malthus in the present day, and so is the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change. They're still thinking in in Malthusian terms, how do we mitigate population expansion and what it does to climate, how do we respond, etc. So I I think Malthus is still in a lot of places today, both academically and in public policy. Um... That was the thing that most surprised me writing the book. He, he is everywhere. My only worry is Malthus is everywhere as a name, but he's still not actually being read. I'm not at all clear that any of the people I've just mentioned would have read Malthus to talk Malthus. 
What was the biggest challenge for you in writing this book? I think the biggest challenge is was uh, trying to come all the way down to the present day. Most of my work until now has been really about the 18th century. To try and track these ideas and how people responded to Malthus down to the present day, uh, that was difficult. But also it's because there are so many strands, many of which I couldn't fit into the book, uh, where Malthus is picked up on. So it's not in the book, but Nietzsche, for example, the German philosopher, is very interested in, in Malthus as well. There are all these strands. And as you come down through the decades... It, it, it's like uh, it's like the heads of Hydra. Every time you think you've got the story, the number of things you have to deal with multiplies. <laughs> so it, it became a sort of unmanageable by the end. That that was that that was the, the, the hardest thing to do with this book to follow as many strands as possible, but also to cover them properly so that the reader understands what they said and which ones to let go. That was painful. Mm. Were there any others that you let go that you would have liked to include in the book, particularly? I would have liked to probably say more about, uh, you touched on it earlier, about eugenics than I did, um, because I mainly talked about eugenics in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. But as I said with the American case, eugenics as a story comes down to much closer to our own era. It certainly comes down to our own lifetimes. It's not something in the dim, distant past. And that would have been something I'd have liked to follow more. Mm. If you could somehow travel back and ask the man a question, uh, what would you ask him? I'd ask him to confirm with me that he wouldn't be surprised if two centuries later there were 7 billion people on the planet and that we were predicted to have 10 billion by about 2050 or 2060 if the United Nations are right. I'd ask him to think about that and I'd ask how that fitted with his theory. As I've already said, I think he'd be very comfortable as to why that's occurred. He'd be amazed at the technologies that have been involved, of course, but I think he'd be quite comfortable that doesn't prove him right or wrong it just shows some of the ways in which uh, his thesis can be applied in different contexts. So I'd love to see what he made of a world of 7 billion people. That was Robert Mayhew. Robert's new book, Malthus, The Life and Legacies of an Untimely Prophet, is out now, published by Harvard University Press. We'll be running a review of the book in our June issue, which is out in a couple of weeks. And in the meantime, you can still get hold of the May issue of BBC History magazine. This month, we're leading with the story of Queen Elizabeth I's war on her Catholic subjects in the 16th century. Plus, we're charting the adventures of British spies in Italy during the Second World War, exploring the scandalous reigns of the Georgians, and investigating a curious tale of cannibalism on the high seas. If you like the sound of any of that, then why not pick up a copy at All Good News Agents or via our digital formats. Time for another quick chat about this week's sponsor, Warner Hotels. If you want to get away in 2024, why not book a weekend package at one of Warner's most historic hotels? There's Little Coat House, which is a stunning Tudor manor in Hungerford, Studley Castle, a beautiful 19th century building in Warwickshire, or Home Lacey, a huge Herefordshire mansion that was once visited by Charles I. Whichever location you choose, you'll be able to enjoy a whole weekend of live talks from your favourite historians during your stay. Find out more and book your break now at warnerhotels.co.uk. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. It's now time for the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarnan. Richard III may have wished to be buried in Midlam, Northamptonshire, London, York or County Durham, leading historian Michael Hicks has said. 
Speaking exclusively to History Extra, Hicks said that at one time or another, the last Plantagenet king envisaged being buried at at least five different locations, none of them Leicester. Hicks said, Richard died a traitor with all his possessions seized by the crown. He died intestate, as though without making a formal will. Therefore, we do not know for sure where he wanted to be buried, but I believe there are a number of possible places. You can read this story in full at historyextra.com. In other news, a number of people visiting Auschwitz, the Nazi death camp where more than a million people died during the Second World War, are scratching messages onto bedbunks and removing so-called souvenirs, it has emerged. According to The Telegraph, administrators of the Auschwitz Museum have said that in some cases, vandals have etched their name with the tag was here onto walls and furniture while others have stolen items such as bits of barbed wire and spikes from the railway line that transported people to the camp. The museum's operators say the size of the camp makes stopping crime difficult, and Poland's culture ministry, which is responsible for the museum, said it opposed the installation of CCTV systems given the environment of the camp. Meanwhile, a prestigious independent school is to become the first in the country to make history compulsory for sixth-form pupils. Pupils at Brighton College will spend an hour each week studying history on top of their chosen A-levels, but will not have to sit exams in the subjects, the Argus reports. The headmaster told the Times that the move was in response to the disgrace that the subject was not compulsory in the UK beyond the age of 14. Do you think history should be compulsory in schools? Share your view by tweeting us at History Extra or by posting on our Facebook page. Thanks for that, Emma, and don't forget to visit historyextra.com for all the latest history news. Before our next interview, here's a reminder that tickets have gone on sale for our 2014 History Weekend Festival. Taking place from the 16th to 19th of October in the Wiltshire town of Malmesbury, the festival features talks from dozens of leading historians, authors and broadcasters, including Hilary Mantel, Paddy Ashdown, Dan Snow... Earl Spencer, Susanna Lipscomb and Tom Holland. To find out more information and to purchase tickets, please visit the festival website, historyweekend.com. The English novelist Wilkie Collins is perhaps best known for his mystery and detective novels, The Woman in White and The Moonstone. But as Andrew Lysert, author of a new biography of Collins, explains to Matt Elton, the author's own life was also masked by secrecy. Well, my previous book was a biography of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, um, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, and I got interested in the origins of the detective story. Uh, And uh, I was sort of uh, looking around for other things that I might write um, as a sort of serial biographer. Um, I was talking to a a publisher who suggested this and suggested that um, Wilkie Collins would be an interesting character. I mean, he didn't really, he wasn't really thinking, you know, along the same lines as me and that I was interested in um, the detective story. You know, he just thought it was an interesting part of Victorian culture. Um, You know, an interesting story, really, uh, of um, this author who was a great friend of Charles Dickens, um, who uh, whose brother married Dickens's daughter, um, who lived a very unconventional life and who had two families, although he wasn't uh, uh, married to either of the women involved. So basically, it was, a, as far as I was concerned, um, it was uh, partly my interest in the detective story and the origins thereof, uh, which, of course, um, one looks to uh, The Moonstone, which is um, Wilkie Collins's great detective novel. And also, when I looked into um, a bit more about Wilkie Collins, I did indeed find that you know, he was a fascinating character that was well worth a biography. Mm. So, I mean, for people who might not know, you've outlined briefly there. I mean, what was his career? He wrote a series of kind of fairly forward-thinking novels, I suppose. Uh, yes, he was born in 1824, the son of quite a, uh, a well-known artist, a, uh, a member of the, the Royal Academy. So, you know, he was part of the sort of establishment. And uh, Wilkie um, reacted against that. Uh, he was a bit of a rebel from pretty early age. And um, Wilkie was associated with 
the artistic world um, throughout his life, really. He was great friends with the Pre-Raphaelites, who were the, the people who came along in the late 1840s and uh, kind of reacted strongly against the formalism of the academy. Uh, friends of Wilkie's were people like um, John Everett Millet, William Holman Hunt, uh, and he used them to illustrate his books and things like that. Um, and he was... Uh, it sort of took a little while to find his métier. He worked initially as a tea broker, which seemed unlikely, but that was uh, what he did. Um, he, uh, he read for the bar, uh, and eventually he, he sort of began writing stories. And um, again, it sort of took him a little while to sort of really get into his stride. But by the 1850s, uh, and particularly after he met Dickens in 1851, uh, he was really, you know, he really began to, um, you know, establish himself on the literary map. Uh, you know, he was very, he'd spent most of his life in London, pretty well all his life in London, and, and all, most of his life very much in one particular area of London, Marylebone, which was where he was born and died and where he had his, his main house in Gloucester Place. So he was very quite plugged in uh, to the literary and artist, artistic world uh, in, in London uh, and indeed in Britain. So, you know, he, he started um, sort of emerging in the 1850s. Uh, his first great sort of great success was um, his novel, The Woman in White, which was published in 1859. Thereafter, you know, he was very much, you know, he was probably one of the highest paid, paid uh, writers in Britain. Um, there's no doubt about that. Um, you know, he was, became very wealthy. Uh, and for about 10, 12 years, um, he was really at the top of, top of his game. Um, that period sort of lasted from about... 1859, as I say, the, um, the date of the, the Women in White, um, till... 1868 in particular was the date of the Moonstone and just maybe a couple of years after that. During that period, he invented more or less uh, a kind of genre of writing, which is called the sensation uh, school of novels, which was basically um, a particular type of uh, novel that kept readers on the edge of their seats. It was designed to keep people turning the pages and to uh, to um, to want to go on. I mean, it used all sorts of devices, drawing on all sorts of things of the past, a bit of gothic, a bit of horror, a bit of uh, detection, which was something that actually he developed. And uh, he also kind of really kind of alighted on a particular theme, which was that there were a lot of secrets hidden under the... Um, underneath the, the sort of trappings of uh, Victorian society. And he did his best to, to try and uncover them. And that was what his plots were all about. He had various themes that he wanted to, um, to expose. I mean, he was very concerned, certainly in his books, about uh, the position of women in society. And that accounts to an extent for uh, his... Um, the fact that he's been sort of rediscovered in the last 30 years. Uh, he was, I mean, the very specific things was that he saw that um, property uh, law was not, uh, was sort of um, uh, acting against women's interests. Um, he wrote several novels around the theme of the marriage laws and how little differences in the legislation in different parts of Britain, uh, i.e. in Scotland, uh, the law was different from Britain and how this was manipulated sometimes. Um, and, uh, you know, this was a theme of his novels. Um, in The Woman in White, you get him uh, latching onto a, a particular uh, theme of uh, the time, which was that people were inclined to try and put their relations into asylums. And this became a bit of a scandal because, uh, uh, you know, there were these private asylums. Doctors could be prevailed upon to sign the chit and sort of put people into asylums. So the, the plot of um, The Woman in White is, again, a very complex one, but partly it's about 
a woman who is wrongfully in an asylum. And the point there is that Wilkie was latching on to a, um, an issue of the moment. Uh, he was, you know, he worked as a journalist with Dickens on Dickens's uh, magazine stroke newspaper, The um, Household Words. And so he was often writing uh, topical articles. And, uh, you know, that gives um, a topicality to all, all his work. He, there was always a sort of sense that Wilkie was tapping into what was going on in society. I mean, there's a couple of themes there that we'll draw out uh, later in the interview. But the one I wanted to pick up first was this idea of secrecy uh, that comes through in his work. How far is it fair to say that his own life was defined by secrecy? Yes, that, um, that is a very good question, actually, because that is the the kind of um, the dichotomy or the, the kind of curious feature of uh, Wilkie Collins' life. Because, um, and it's also, you know, it's, it's not, not unusual in uh, writers and artists, I think, that he was obsessed with this uh, theme of secrecy. Uh, he certainly wrote a lot about it. Uh, but he, uh, at the same time as sort of, uh, in his writings, appearing to want to uncover secrecy in his private life, uh, he was determined to keep as mu- as much of it as private as possible. So it's interesting the the development of the theme of of privacy. You get that in the Moonstone in a kind of different kind of way because uh, you get the the detective uh, going into um, a private house. Uh, and trying to uncover the, you know, what had happened as far as the theft of the moonstone was concerned, uh, and the the woman who owned the house, sort of feeling that this was an intrusion. I think that um, you know we, you know, there's absolutely no reason to think that privacy, uh, which is very much a kind of topical thing in in our culture, is um, uh, a modern thing. I, you know, people were concerned in the changing uh, times, um, sort of Victorian, uh, early Victorian world. I mean, as I say, Wilkie was born 1824, you know, and then he sort of came into his own in the early years of of Queen Victoria. And it was a time of great change and people weren't sure what was happening. And I think that was one of the features that he latched onto in writing his sensation novels, that people uh, were sort of slightly on edge, um, but they hadn't quite got used to the the sort of um, the changes that were happening. How unusual was Wilkie Collins's home life? Wilkie's home life was was quite unusual, and that was in a way one of the attractions um, of Wilkie as a biographical subject. Wilkie uh, was not the typical Victorian. He wasn't a sort of gung ho. Uh, rationalist even um, in the way that you might consider to be in the case um, in the Victorian times. He wasn't a, um, a great materialist. Uh, he was a bit of a pacifist. Uh, he didn't support the Crimean War, for example, in the 1850s. He was somewhat unusual in his sympathies for uh, women and uh, their sort of position in society and their uh, the way that they suffered under the vagaries of man-made law. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, he <laughs> carried on his life as he wanted to lead it. As I already mentioned, uh, he had two families that um, initially he became, um, he lived with a woman called Caroline Graves, uh, who was a young widow whose husband had died from tuberculosis. And uh, Wilkie met her in Marylebone, like a lot of his life was um, revolved around Marylebone. Uh, she was working in a marine store, which is really the kind of the lowest of the low at the time. You know, it's a bit like working in a junk shop uh, today. And people were sort of suggesting that, um, I mean, she was really at the sort of the nadir of her fortunes. People have suggested that she may have been working as a prostitute. Uh, People also suggested that she was the model for the woman in white. But anyway, Wilkie set up house with her initially um, in a kind of rather seedy little part of Maryland, but eventually they they moved to rather better uh, house in uh, Gloucester Place. Uh, But while 
Wilkie was living with Caroline and indeed with her daughter, Harriet, uh, whom he was very good to, whom he put through school, etc., etc. Uh, he met another woman uh, while out researching a novel called Armadale, and this took him to Great Yarmouth in 1864. And um, he developed a liaison with a woman, a very young woman, uh, called Martha Rudd, who came from pretty much an illiterate farming family. She was working as a barmaid in Great Yarmouth at the time. Somehow or other, Wilkie prevailed on her to come to, uh, to London, and um, he established her in a flat in Marylebone again in 1868. Um, and I know that because uh, one of the interesting sort of research tools that I was able to call on was Wilkie's bank accounts. You know, there's various things that a biographer can can call on, obviously letters, etc. But uh, in this case, um, he banked at Coots and uh, Coots has a good sort of archive and it was able to share uh, details of all his um, inputs and outgoings, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I was able, you know, I, I saw um, obviously that uh, he was paying the the rent on this uh, this um, these lodgings in Marylebone from a particular date in 1868. I was also able to see uh, another aspect of his unconventional life was that he was the great imbiber of um, opium, and or um, often in the form of laudanum, which of course was pretty widely available in Victorian times, which played quite an important part in his life because he suffered badly from gout. And so uh, he took ever-increasing amounts of um, laudanum. And uh, strangely, I, mean, I don't think it really um, sort of affected him uh, as a drug, I mean, the 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 pain often affected him, and uh, he would be under, you know, he would be suffering when he was trying to complete novels, etc., etc. But he managed to uh, live with this, you know, what's what what's called an addiction to opium. He took uh, vast quantities of it. Uh, I mean, there was a story about him and a friend who went to Switzerland, and uh, you know, Wilkie was feeling that he needed his his. Uh, his fix of um, of opium, uh, and they had to go to four chemists in this particular uh, town in Switzerland in order to get the amount that Wilkie needed. Is it fair to say that he became less popular during the later stages of his life, and what do you think caused this? I think it is fair to say that uh, he had his his great heyday uh, in that period in the particularly the eighteen sixties. Uh, thereafter. Um, and this may be attributable to his in, intake of opium. Uh, he seemed slightly to lose his creative flair, and his novels became a little bit more, um, not prosaic, but polemical in the sense that he latched on to themes. Now, I in indicated that, you know, there was always a sort of topical aspect to his novels, but he kept that in, in um, check. But... After about the mid-1870s, um, the, the sort of polemical aspect of things became much more prevalent. And, uh, you know, he would write about themes much more obviously. Uh, and uh, so he would be talking about, for example, he wrote a novel, Heart, Heart and Science, about um, sort of attack on uh, vivisection. Uh, he sort of people began to notice this. And for example, the, the poet Swinburne, uh, in his capacity as a, as a critic, um, he was quite sympathetic to Wilkie, but he, he wrote uh, a much noted, much quoted um, sort of, uh, what can only be described as a put down of Wilkie Collins. Uh, uh, towards the end of Collins's life, Collins died in 1889, and Swinburne wrote, um, What brought good Wilkie's genius nigh perdition? Some demon whispered, Wilkie have a mission. I.e., um, you know, Wilkie's kind of uh, desire to get his points across was really uh, kind of, um, he was doing that at the expense of his creative uh, his creativity and what most surprised you during the course of your own research into this uh 
I think what surprised me most really was um, how sympathetic Wilkie was. Uh, you know, I had had um, I didn't really know too much about him. You know, because um, sort of you know, I didn't know about him personally, and I discovered that um, you know he was a very warm. Uh, sociable chap um, whom everybody seemed to like. I mean, there's very, I, it's very hard. I can't actually think of anybody at the moment who disliked Wilkie. You know, you can have a debate about the extent to which he treated his women well, and that's an interesting one that I've had lots of conversations about because, you know, there he was with uh, two women. Uh, he wasn't married to either. Uh, and um, somehow or other, you know, you you can, you know, they, they they might have had a better life otherwise, or they might not. You just can't really say. That was Andrew Lysett. Wilkie Collins, A Life of Sensation, is out now in paperback, published by Windmill Books. Well, that's almost all for this week. Do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com, and we'll do our best to read out some of your messages in future episodes. Now we've had some more contributions to the debate about our theme music and so far most of the messages have been positive but we've had an alternative view from Julie Houston. She writes, I was so glad to hear someone else raise the issue of the theme tune. I agree with Andrew and would actually say that I loathe it. I rushed to forward the podcast so that I miss as much of the theme tune as possible. It for me is the only negative thing about the podcast which I enjoy very much. I would be so delighted if it was changed. I wait with bated breath. Thanks for that, Julie, and please keep your comments coming in about this discussion or anything else. And as well as email, you can keep in touch with us on social media, follow us on Twitter at History Extra, or like us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash History Extra. And do make sure to check out our website, historyextra.com, for all the latest history news, quizzes, galleries, articles and previous episodes of this podcast that date back right to 2007. Next week, we'll be talking to Orlando Figes about the history of Russia, while Matthew Parker will be offering his thoughts on the Battle of Monte Cassino. Do join us for that. This History Extra podcast was recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher. Before you go, one final word about this week's sponsor, Warner Hotels. If you fancy a break in 2024, you can now choose from three fantastic weekend packages at some of the most historic Warner Hotels. For instance, Littlecote House is set in a stunning location in Hungerford, which has played host to Romans, a civil war army and the planning of the D-Day landings. Meanwhile, Studley Castle in Warwickshire was used as a training camp for the Women's Land Army during the World Wars. Find out more and book your break now at warnerhotels.co.uk.